All right, let's, uh, let's pray and let's go. We always have short numbers on days with voters meetings in the afternoon, and also we, we take a week off. It always, always kind of slaves. Come on in. It's all good. How are you? Good. A little hand up right there if you want it. Hey, Greg. All right, let's pray. Here we go. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, Colossians 1.12. Almighty and everlasting God, who through your Son has assured forgiveness of sins and deliverance from eternal death, strengthen us, we beg, by your Holy Spirit, that we may daily increase in faith through grace and hold fast to the hope in Christ that we shall not die fall asleep and then be raised again on the last day to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the prayers get a little more ponderous toward the end of the year and uh, you know there's a little more talk of judgment and death kind of stuff but that's not too bad. Uh, let's see. If you got a million dollars drop it in this basket. It won't stay to St. John. It'll go somewhere cool like Ghana. Uh, Carol Heidorn figures that out. Usually I have an attendance sheet, but I don't have it with me, so I'll just, uh, is the vicar here somewhere, vicar? Uh, yeah, we should still have a voters meeting if a million dollars comes in. Good to figure out how to spend it then, so that's good. Yeah, come to the voters meeting, in case you, I'm sure you've heard the announcements. Everybody come to the voters meeting, that would be the best thing. Um, so we've been working uh, a little bit with justice and mercy. Um, it's better to be mercy people than justice people, but uh, justice has its place. And so we want to be careful about that. And often when we talk that way, uh, people will presume immediately that somehow justice is a bad thing. And it's not a bad thing at all. It's actually a good thing, but it's uh, a little bit hard on us. So just for fun, a bit of review then. Uh, Jesus is intent on having us as his own. So what Jesus wants is to have you back. Follow me, he says, drawing us all into what he is, drawing all we are into what he is. So be conformed to the image of Christ. That's how scripture speaks. So Jesus is trying to draw you back and put his stamp on you. Okay? There are all sorts of ways to describe this Christological life, but for a few weeks, we're having to go at the life of a disciple as the way of mercy rather than justice. Now this is really important. As soon as we say that, we'd like mercy rather than justice. We have a tendency, the way we think, to put those then as opposites. But uh, we need to be careful about that. That doesn't really get it all right. Uh, in fact, when you leave the seminary, they always give you a quiz. You sit before three professors and they soothe their consciences that they've taught you something over the years. And then they always say, um, give me one word that fulfills the entire law and the entire gospel all of justice and all of mercy. If I said that to you, give me one word that fulfills all of, all of justice and all of mercy, what would you say? Oh, nicely said. But you're damaged goods from being here for so long. Okay, so you can't say Christ. She said Christ, what would it be? Christ is, if she's been to a children's sermon, the answer is always, what's in the bag? Glasses, no, Jesus. It's always Jesus. Whatever you pull out of the bag is Jesus. It's an orange, no, it's Jesus. It's a pipe wrench, no, it's Jesus. So, um, so okay, so um, something slightly less sophisticated, something slightly, uh, so if you can't use Jesus, what would you use? Although you're very close. Yes, please. Love, yes, love is, of course, a great answer for that. Love fulfills all of the gospel, all of the law, and all of the gospel. Go ahead. 
Right, so if we, that's right, good, right. That's right. Yes, that's right. So it's not, a, it's so justice, so uh, let me see if I can say it, I'll paraphrase that in the right way. Justice is a good thing, but if people feel it as a hammer, they don't tend to pay much attention. If they can hear it in a different way, in the way of love, then uh, it's much more amenable to them. Is that fair? Okay, good. So I just don't want to be misunderstood as saying that justice is a bad thing, uh, especially because we need to be better about justice, especially watch not for other people. Um, it's in the sermon today, the little, the lost, the last, the least, and the dead. Uh, we could do a lot better by people who need justice in the world, but you have to know what you're doing as you go. Um, I was sitting with the bishop in New York over lunch, and he said, we were talking about this, because uh, he's done great mercy things. They've built They've been part of building a billion dollars worth of low-cost housing in New York City. He took us to, he took it, and we were talking about justice and mercy, and he said, you know, one of the problems is, is that one man's, one man's justice, one man's mercy is another man's justice. You know, people don't agree on what justice is. So, um, fortunately in the church, though, we could probably do a little bit better. So, it's not that justice is a bad thing, okay? Just want to be really clear of it. It's that we're not very good at it. Now, justice is a good thing. We're just not very good, you know, at, at delivering justice. We're not very good at it. And it can really get warped to the point where Jesus has to say, judge not, you won't be judged. And maybe toward the end of this, we need to take up what that means. Um, but that's a recognition that we're not very good at it. Justice works in the way of unflinching fairness, impartiality, objectivity, and keeping tabs. So justice is you get what you deserve. It's a valuable, decent thing. It makes the world go round, right? I mean, if you if you don't put um, you know if you don't punish criminals, everybody becomes a criminal. So justice, in some sense, makes the world go round. It's a good, decent thing, and actually, Jesus Himself is really good at it, and He lives by it, and He lives in it. So one of the things we always say about the person and work of Christ is that He fulfills the law completely. He does that in love, and He's perfectly just. But we so often get it wrong, originally, you know, our, our sense of justice is bent, and habitually, we sin like crazy. So we're, and you know this from being Lutherans a long time, we have sin in us, we're born with it, and then therefore, we do sins. So Jesus comes in flesh and blood to make wrongs right, and he does that in the way of mercy. This rings in all sorts of kind words and good stories. And so here's what we've been doing. If you've been listening to the words about mercy, these are the words that have been being used. Release, freedom, reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness. And the stories that have gone with it, the merciful king, the prodigal father, the seeking shepherd. And we'll do another one today. Notice how the kindness and goodness lies within the just thing. So actually, the kindness and goodness is within Christ himself. Why does the shepherd go out and seek? Because he's good. Why does the prodigal father welcome his son home? Because he's good. Why does the king forgive a man who can't repay his debt? Because the king is good. It's, it's extraordinarily important. And this, just, this is what Lutherans do so well, which is it's not about you and it's not about me. He doesn't love me because I'm lovable. He loves me even though I'm unlovable. Extraordinarily important to understand that. So justice is a thing that resides in God, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Um, this was Luther's great discovery, that the righteousness of God was a gift, not a demand. So when God says, be righteous, he makes you righteous. And I think you'll get a surprise in the middle of this story. You'll think Luther wrote this. <clears throat> God doesn't want to be your enemy. I mean, the only way God is ever your enemy is if you make him be your enemy. If you force God to be your enemy, he'll be your enemy, but he's really not interested in being your enemy. He wants to be your father, wants to be your savior, wants to be your friend, and he wants all his children home again in Eden. The only way that Jesus is your enemy is if you force him. If you make Jesus engage you in the way of justice, if you force him, he will do it. If you force other people to engage you in the way of justice, it'll eventually come around. Live by the sword, die by the sword. I mean, if you make justice the motif, if you force it, if you force justice, justice will come. But gosh, that's a tough way to live. Because we're not any good at it, which means you're not good when you do it to somebody and you're not good when it's done to you. So we need to find another way to live. Mercy is the only way out. It's the only way home. Mercy asks, so it bids, it seeks. Mercy gifts, mercy heals, mercy strengthens, mercy hopes. Mercy is life with a big L. So that's what you're aiming at, okay? So that's just kind of where we've been so far. And I know we've had scattered weeks and we've had, you know, interruptions and, you know, numbers always go down if we inter if we, we know, even last week, if we take a week off, people just get out of the habit. And, of course, we have a voters meeting today, so we, we're going to have a big last service. Um, nevertheless, on we go. So Luke 18, can you find that? You'll know this story if you've been around your Bible at all in Luke 18. <clears throat> so as you're reading this, here's my question. Uh, here's what I want you to think about. How would you talk about the Pharisee, and how would you talk about the publican? I know what your trained responses are. You know, if you've been to Sunday school or if you know, went, to, went to Lutheran school, I, I know kind of what normally is said, but I wonder if you'll, um, just as you listen, see if you can find the Pharisee likable and the publican unlikable. I know, I know if you've read this story before, you'd know the punchline. But the part of the problem is, is after you've heard a story one time, you can hardly hear it again the way it was originally talked about. Um, so I just pose as you listen to this, can you like the Pharisee and not like the publican? Or I'll put it in another way, who would you rather have as your next door neighbor? Okay, so just think about that. Jesus told a parable, this is verse 9, about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Publican is the name for that in the King James, and literally in the Latin, publicanus means a tax farmer, somebody who grows taxes for a living. Isn't that a great description? So you have a Pharisee and a publican. God, I thank you. I'm not like other, other men. I'm glad I'm not like other people. I'm glad there's just one of me. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And of course, this is in the liturgy. Sometimes we've actually had people ask why we don't do this here. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm the biggest sinner who ever lived. It comes right out of the text. Sometimes um, people are, 
confused where things in the church come from. There's almost always a scriptural reference. I was talking with somebody the other day about relics, how relics came into the church. Well, it's there in Acts. If you touch the, the hem of one of the apostles' garments, people were healed. As they walked by and their shadow fell on people and they, people were healed. So what do people do? They say, wow, um, maybe, that, maybe that garment still works and they hold on to it, right? So it's not just pure superstition. There are biblical stories from what they say. Anyway, so this is where it comes from. Mea culpa, mea culpa, I'm a sinner. So you're just doing what the publican does. You know, I'm a sinner. Standing far off. He won't even lift up his eyes to him. Beats his breath saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man, that is the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So I'll just put it to you. What do you like about the Pharisee? Can you find anything to like about the Pharisee? Anybody? Please. He tithes. Apt, Mr. Yonker. Thank you very much. Ramona. Plays by the rules. And not only the church, he plays by the rules the church put down, but in the bigger part of his life, too. De Denise. He's a powerful young man. Yes, he is. What else? So, what can you like about him? Please, Beth. Exactly. His leaves are up already. Yes. He's not the. There, you know, there's neighbors who get their leaves up, and there are neighbors who pray for wind. Right? <laughs> So, you know, this guy's leaves are up already, right? What else? He ties on the gross, that away. We can have that discussion a little later, Jan. Thank you very much. What else? Fast twice a week? Help me out. Pharisees were Thursdays, Sundays? Sundays and Thursdays, I think, were Pharisees on Sundays and Thursdays. So in the early church, then Christians fasted on Wednesday and Friday because they didn't want to be mistaken for Jews or Pharisees. <laughs> true, true, that's true. So they picked alternate days. So Pharisees went two days, and that's where, of course, fish on Friday and all that kind of stuff comes from. It all has a tie, but um, I fast twice a week. So people read this story, so they fasted twice a week. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, he's, you, you know, do you say when you let your kids go to somebody else's house, do you say, are the parents going to be home? This is a guy who's always home. You know, this is a guy who doesn't have a car on blocks in his front yard. This guy, his checking account balances. Sometimes we, we you know, we're so hard on the Pharisees because we're used to, you know, we have this mental image of them. But frankly, the Pharisees, they had a lot going for them. And if you were picking next-door neighbors, you would want one as, as just tell me what a publican is like. He doesn't mow. No, he doesn't mow. You're exactly right. He, he may cry that he doesn't have a mower, although publicans tend to be uh, fairly... Zacchaeus was a publican, right? So part of the, part of the fun of being a publican, a, a, a taxer, was that you got to have soldiers go with you and people could pay one way or another. So they tended out to be, so if you, it might be that he doesn't trim his grass. It could be that he has guys on his payroll who does it for him, yes. Landscapers, even illegal landscapers. If you can kind of imagine what you'd think of as a mafia don, that's kind of what the publican is like. So presume he's rich, he's also powerful, but everything he's ever got, he got by bending the rules, right? So. 
for him. Well, you, you're seeing a very small slice of his life. So she said it, it sounds like constant pity party for him, which for these few verses is true. But if you could avoid being stabbed in a crowd, a tax collector was a pretty good deal. You remember that the um, tax collectors were considered traitors because they honored Caesar rather than the temple. And there were the zealots, um, and you still hear this. I mean, this still happens in Jerusalem, you know, once a month or once every two months. Uh, some tourist will get uh, dropped in a crowd. Um, that has a long tradition. The, I can't remember the Hebrew word for it, but they were guys who were specialists with long knives. It's where the zealots come from, but the Hebrew word's even more fun. And they were, they were good at stabbing people in crowds, and tax collectors were a number one kind of target because they were considered to be traitors. So it's this kind of rough and tumble thing. Yes, Ron? Yes, now that's interesting. Your suggestion is that the tax collectors didn't have a formula. I was wondering if you think your tax collector has a formula. <laughs> say, say the guy who's evaluating your house. Extra bathroom? I didn't see this on the, we really need to talk this over. Yeah. So if you can, if you can hear them as, if you can hear them, I wonder if you could hear them as roughly, just for the fun of the story, could you hear them as roughly the same socioeconomic class? Both powerful, both polished. Um, both who have people work for them, both who, but, you know, one guy spends all his money on limousines and, you know, casinos and drinks and women, and one guy, you know, is home tucked safely in bed every night at 9 o'clock. But so if you can see them in some sense as equals, um, it might help you hear the story a little better. Now, the trouble's already there in verse 9 when you ask about trusting yourself, and, and I gave you the... Uh, Dictaios is the word for righteousness. He trusted himself that he was right, or that he was righteous, or that he was just. And of course, this is the great overtones of redemption and justification. But he trusted himself that he was a justice kind of guy. Um, and so justice, you know, puts the measure on everybody else. Um, justice, by way of the law, weighs people up, measures them, calculates, keeps tabs. You know, you get the tape measure on people. That's how justice works. You measure up. He's quite sure that he did. I give you a little bit from our confessions where it says something that's very simple and I've always found very helpful, which is the law either makes you proud or terrified. And that's what you see in this story. If you're a justice kind of guy, you'll, one of two things will happen to you eventually. You'll either be very proud. Lord, I'm glad I am not like other men. Or you'll be terrified because you'll realize that to live by justice is always to come up short. And that's how the story goes. So let's kind of keep going. And the way of pride is despising others. Because partly what you do when, if, you, if you're prideful, you measure yourself and then you measure somebody else and they're always a foot shorter than you are. So you really feel like you can sort of stand above them and say, you know, I'm like this, but you're like that. Um, that's not the way of Jesus, and it's kind of a loser's game. Okay, I'm going to, well, let me give you actually one more thing at the bottom that I've been puzzling with and put to a few people to test. You can test this too. But I've said this before, which is, in the church, um, so much in the church we're defined by what we hate. We see something we hate, so they do that, or that church does that, or that religion does that, or that denomination does that. We hate that, so we would never do it. 
To be defined by what you hate is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to be defined by what you love. And I'd suggest to you that the way of justice can be, while justice is a good thing, it's often the way of hatred. Now see, it's really important. You can use good things for bad purposes. Um, you can use a good law for a bad purpose. You can use just things for, uh, and in fact, it may even be true. It may turn out that you're hateable and I am too. Um, if that's the end of the story, that's not a very good story. But if we're defined by what we love rather than what we hate, it might go a little better. So he told this story of people who trusted in themselves, and not just that they trusted, they trusted they were righteous, they were right, they were just. And that caused them then to despise other people. So this is a story for people who are proud. This is a story for people who think they measure up and think they can stand in judgment with their judgment over everybody else. And it may even be that they take God's judgment and they use it, but it's an illicit use. So it just doesn't mean that it's just maybe my private judgment. In my opinion, there's something wrong with you. It's that people, you have to be very careful whenever you stand up and say, in God's opinion, you're wrong. You just have to be very careful when you say that about other people. You, you really got to know what you're talking about. Because um, to, to presume to speak for God is a pretty fearsome thing. Uh, to call God's judgment down on other people is a pretty, pretty fearsome thing. So, and it goes very easily to pride and it goes very easily uh, to justify himself. So um, be careful when you're handling it. So I'm on the second page now, just swept and taken his stand. He makes himself visible to everybody, self-defined flesh and blood template of justice. And notice then, if his, if his template is righteousness, or being right, or just, then there is um, the unjust. And you notice there, if you're following along in your Greek New Testament, that the way you um, make things uh, sometimes, uh, you put the A in front of them, and it makes it the opposite, like anti, so adikos, right? Those who bend the rules, those who are fraudulent with others. So he would look at this other guy who's rich, uh, and he would say, that guy's a fraud. He's got the cars, he's got the boats, he's got the money, he's got the power, but he's a fraud. Um, so you need, in some, in some ways, uh, you, you hate other people and you love yourself. And when that happens, um, everything we do gets infected. The truth is, the guy's tithing and his fasting and his praying isn't worth a nickel, at least in the eyes of God. That's what the story's telling so, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and, um, or even like this tax collector. And if you kind of, if you knew the lingo of how they talked in the first century, um, that would be getting worse and worse because adulterers and tax collectors, adulterer becomes a word for people not only who uh, sleep with their next-door neighbor's wife, but also for people who forsake Yahweh for another God. And tax collectors then are people who have cut themselves off from Israel to worship Caesar rather than Israel. So you've lost your God and you've lost your, you've lost your God and you've lost your people, which is the worst thing you can say about somebody in the first century. So it's this progression of that guy's really bad and thank God. I've often wondered, you know this phrase, there but for the grace of God go I? I'm not sure that's a very comforting phrase. You might just think that over, you know? That's not a very... That's very close to, I'm really glad I'm not like other people. But you might just someday when you're not doing anything else think about that. 
Okay. So think about it. I'm at point five. I'm just trying to say to you, think about it from God's point of view. So these two guys are in the temple, kind of one in the front, visible, standing up, head up, here we go. I'm glad I'm not like anybody else. Then this other guy, equally accomplished, but utterly different stance, head bowed, his traditional way of humility, pounding on himself, another way, sackcloth and ashes to show your, um, you know, that something's completely out of whack, and saying, I got nothing. So if you're God and you're looking at that, um, I just wonder, without reading ahead, how do you think God would feel toward the guy standing in the front? I'm not asking exactly how you might feel, although it may be the same. I'm just asking, what do you think, how do you think God would feel about that guy? What do you think? Okay, make it you. So you're standing in the front, <laughs> head up, really proud about that. How does God feel about you? What do you think? Yes, please. It's a very generous answer. Uh, which, anybody else? He is deceiving himself, but that easily fits under the, the previous category. Yes, please. You know, you sound like a mother who said that to a child before. <laughs> your behavior is your own reward. <laughs> that sounds like a motherly thing to say. Have you ever... I might be able to use that later. Yes, that's right. It does sound like his behavior is his own reward. Good. But yes, please. Uh, it would at least give you the sense, perhaps. It does finish. So the, if the parable ends with the publican being justified, and it seems like the, maybe the, the Pharisee doesn't go down to his house justified. Good. But just so, uh, you're right. From the raw emotion of Jesus looking at somebody, I'm surprised none of you have said anger, which what I thought I thought would be your normal response. Huh? Well, because pride, pride, pride. Well, that's because you're a Christian, Carol. Um, I don't know that you. Well, I don't know if you. Last time you were at the Trader Joe's and somebody cut in front of line because they thought they were better than you, was your normal reaction to them that you felt pity for them or you were crabby because you weren't going to get home for the 5.30 news? Yes, I know you do. So there's, a, there's always another factor in a woman's life. Yes, it might. Well, I mean, okay, so that, now, now we're getting a little more to the meat of the matter, which is Marty says, you know, maybe God just looks down and he says, let's just kind of see how good you really are, you know, which is getting dangerous. Want to go? Eric, yeah. And in the middle of the week, we're crying out loud. It's not a normal day because he's there at the wrong time. This is probably the... Not a normal Sabbath. Yes, please.
That's very helpful. So, so uh, uh, the suggestion is that that he, you know, he sort of started in the right direction and somewhere veered off, and instead of giving God credit for all the good stuff that was going on, he sort of takes it for himself, right? But then there's a place where the scripture talks about having the form of religion but not the content of it, right? So it looks like you're a pretty good guy, but it doesn't. I'd suggest, yes, please, Mom. Really? <laughs> I thought you were only Luther for the hour and the... I got I to gotta rethink that. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I mean, I think that it's probably that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, you're doing it all right now, but, you know, when you walk out the door, do you still go through right. the same thing? This is one of the great criticisms of church people, of course, that they can be good only for one hour a week. <laughs> yes, please, Marilee. Uh, yes, he does love them. Which is the gentlest answer. Was the one on the left side over there? Yes, please. Right, now that's sort of the next step down. I'm trying to just work with how, the, how God sees him. So that, the very first thing he said was this combination of compassion and, and anger, which seems to be very helpful. If you read the Psalms, of course, you know that, that God does, in fact, or if you read the prophets, God does, in fact, get very angry. Um, and, and regularly, Israel becomes sort of the, uh, the point of contact for this as, as the prideful one who goes off on their own. You take another husband or you go another place or whatever. But I think um, it's important for us to remember that God's default is always mercy. Um, if, there wa- if his default wasn't mercy, there wouldn't be an incarnation. And so while there is some irritation, you know, your, your early answers were you know, very nice answers, which is God really tries to discourage you from doing it on your own. I mean, he'll let you do it on your own if you want, but it never really works out that well. So, um, you know, we don't, we don't have in the parable exactly what God's thinking about, but we know from other places how God thinks, and we know, of course, in the person of Christ, ultimately, how he talks about it. So, um, you know, what else can, I'm at just five, if the Pharisee appears, you know, what else can God do but pity him and um, try to get him to, to, to take a different tact? Um, the way of the Pharisee is always going to fail. So, you know, the point, and the good Lutheran point, the good Jesus point is, you, you and I can't make wrongs right. At the end of the day, you know, you can't make wrongs right. Although I was um, musing, there's always a gap between when I write this in the week and then later kind of think about it. I was musing about, um, you know, this phrase when people say it's, it's easier to ask forgiveness than ask permission, you know that phrase? Yeah, never a bigger lie was spoken. Because here's the reason why. If you repent of a sin, I just you can just test this. If you repent of a sin and would do it again, it's not repentance. 
so um, people will come in and say, I mean, there's sort of classic things where this people say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to ask God for forgiveness. The real test case for that is if you would do it again, if you would do the same thing again, um, that's not a real repentance. A real repentance is to abhor what you've been and what you've done and never do it again. You would never do it again. So the notion that you can, it's easier to ask for forgiveness rather than permission is really to fall into, uh, you know, kind of a blind alley. Maybe this is a, it's a dark hole when you go there. You might just think about that as well. Um, the publican sort of gives you the other side. I'm going all the way to seven here because I'm trying to get these done one at a time. So he's at a distance. His head is down. He's beaten his breast. And it's interesting that the only other place where there's a description of somebody with their head down, beating their breast, the only other place that happens is when Jesus is being crucified. Kind of fascinating. I mean, some, sometimes that, that happens. Um, Pastor Ganning did the great verse yesterday in the new number class about how um, they strike the rock, and, the, and Paul says the rock is Christ, and water gushes out of it. And then how they strike the rock, Christ on the cross, on the side with the spear, and water gushes out. Um, you know, sometimes it just is how things are put together. But this is, this is the only, there's only two places where this comes in, where somebody's beating their breast with their head down like this. The other place is under a cross. And then literally, verse 13, this is where Luther said, love the grammar like you love the church. You know, read the text for all it's worth. Your verse 13 probably says something like, um, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the problem with that is uh, you don't get the full sense of the passive verb. It's not wrong. It really is, in the literal translation, Oh God, be propitiated, which is a technical theological term, which means be satisfied. Okay? So let your anger be exhausted by some action or some compensation. So, oh God, be made right. Oh God, be propitiated. You know, merciful, we just have this sense of oh, it's all okay. Hey, it's, it's all going to be okay. And when it happens, it's all going to be okay the next time it happens. Um, the sense there is very different. Oh, God, be propitiated toward me, a sinner. This is a passive verb, and this is the best part of it, which is the best thing about the publican is he realizes he can't fix it himself. So your, your, your confession is full and complete when you say, I can't do anything about this. I have, I have messed this up so miserably. I just simply cannot fix it myself. Oh, God, you fix, your, you fix it for yourself and then let me in on it. Oh, God, be propitiated. Um, does that make sense? You got that? It's really, really important because it takes you out of the loop and then it restores you to what we always talk about here, which is there's only one story in Scripture, which is death and resurrection. So he's basically standing in the back of the church saying, all the stuff I've got and all the power I have and all the people I can command, it just doesn't make any difference. I, I just can't get it right. Uh, and see, it's the difference between people who think they can get it right without God or even pridefully with God and people who have a stance of faith that says, you're going to have to do everything. So it's God who does the propitiating, the expiating. Expiating is another way of uh, an expiation is a sacrifice for a sin. 
So it's God who does the cleaning up, God who does the soothing, God who does the sacrificing, God who does the cleansing. It's God who does the fixing. Uh, it's God who does the reconciling, the forgiving, the resurrecting. God is the one at work. And of course, that's what you're supposed to um, get out of this. Pride. Augustine said pride is the, is the only real sin. And it's the first commandment saying that you should put yourself in God's place and try to do God's work, which is exactly what you see here in this thing. If you stand in front and say, I'm glad I'm not like other people. In fact, I really hate other people, and I think I can get it right all by myself. Ultimately, God just pities you. Now, I'll give you just kind of one other thing to think about, which is this is the kind of things to be tested for you to think about. Mercy doesn't is not really activated until you see its value. It's another way of saying that grace doesn't work by force, but mercy is always there. It's hovering. It's even right next to you. It's always just right there. Mercy is always right there. But until you confess or until you recognize its value, it doesn't do you any good. When you don't see the value in it, you for yourself render it valueless. It's still a valuable thing objectively. But if you don't confess, you never have need of it. If you never have need of it, you never rejoice in it. You never rejoice in it. You never live in it. Does that make sense? Got it? So there's something about confession that activates mercy for you. And that's how Luther always taught. That's how the small catechism taught. Not just that it happened, but that it happened for you. And that's done in the act of contrition and confession. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I'm the greatest sinner that ever lived. Got it? Yes, Mr. Lee. Go ahead. Um, I have to look at a bulletin. Uh, it does, uh, there, is a, there is this dance between the I and the we, and you can, you can pick which side you, you like to have. You know, the creed used to say, the original creed says we, and then we reduced it back to I. Uh, yeah, we confess that we're by nature sinful and clean. You grew up with I, a poor, visible sinner, confess unto you. Um, if you can keep from pushing those things too hard against each other, the, the, the church sort of ebbs and flows. Um, sometimes when it gets too much we word, they'll probably go back to the I word. And if it gets too much I word, they'll probably go back to the we. Um, but you can certainly say it the other way around. If you go to private confession or if you even say confession, if you have devotions and confess during the day, normally that's in an I form. So just kind of let them both hang there because you're part of a community, but you're a person in the community, but you're always part of the community. And real honestly, the history of the church in the last hundred years has been really long on I and really short on we. So I'm not sure what the lit liturgy guys were thinking, but that would be my guess. Holly. You're bumming me out. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. Yeah, so the question is if mercy is always waiting, is judgment, is judgment always waiting? Yeah. Can I do the mercy side first? Uh, the best example of mercy always waiting is when Jesus is being nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. That is the ultimate mercy as they're waiting. And they just keep hammering, right? So mercy is always there, and mercy is always there immediately. Here's the thing about judgment. Judgment doesn't always come immediately because God is very long-suffering. So one of the most horrifying chapters, you know, you don't want to read this in just before you go to bed at night and not read something else. But one of the most horrifying chapters is at the beginning of Romans uh, where he says uh, something like, why do you keep living like this? Um, do you presume? You know, therefore you have no excuse, oh man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. This is Romans 2, verse 1. Um, do you suppose, O oh man, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you'll escape the judgment? And then this is the most horrifying verse. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So that tells you something. It tells you that he withholds his judgment for a time, but not forever. Right? And the hard thing about that is you never quite know when it's coming. My nervousness about saying that judgment is always waiting, is that you, you can turn Jesus into a Greek god. The Greeks, you know, if you read Greek tragedy, you know, Oedipus has this great, great life, and then suddenly what? We're crying out loud, he marries his mother, right? I mean, they're always, there's always, the Greeks are always waiting, the Greek gods are always ready to hammer you, right? And so life's never going to be too good because as soon as you're on top, you know pretty soon you're going to be on the bottom right? That is not Jesus. Sometimes people will say, my life is going so well, I'm afraid. That is not the gospel. That's, see, so judgment, so I want to agree with you, judgment's always there, and if you presume forever that judgment will never come, that's a loser's game, and you know what? It comes to each of us at different times and different ways according to how God chooses to dish it out. Sometimes it comes collectively to a group, often it comes to individuals. That's why Luther always said, if you get really sick, you should probably have a good look at your life. You may be caught in some big sin and the Lord may be sending you a warning. Or if things don't go very well for you, you should probably look at your life. You know, if there's a good chance that you've brought judgment down upon yourself. But I don't want to pull it as close as mercy because the nature of God is mercy and that's always hovering. He's only going to be your enemy if you make him be your enemy. And he's really patient for a long time. And you're proof of that so much. Yes, please. Yes. You, he does, so the question is, does he deliver justice in our lives to entice us to show us the value of mercy? Yes. And so the law and then the gospel. But the, the thing is, is here's always the, the problem. We, we're so law-oriented by nature. So at a funeral, you don't have to preach much law. Why don't you have to preach much law at a funeral? Why? Because you've got a dead body lying right there. So that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all the law anybody needs, right? And we're much more given to the law naturally. We're, 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 we're irrevocable, irrevocably justice kind of people naturally. 
because we like to distance, we like to judge, we like to push down so because we think that pulls us up. All the bad things your mother told you about how you should act when you're in high school, don't you just go through life and think, it's just still high school? Don't you feel that way, right? So uh, I'm thinking to myself a lot, seems like high school again. Um, so that's why attention to the Eucharist, remembering your baptism, going to confession, you know, because we need to be rewired in the way. I got two things I want to ask. I'm sorry we're after the point. I, so I just po I'll just pose this to a question. Let's say we had this happen in our congregation. Let's say we had it here and here. Yeah, and you can all figure out the story about not being prideful and all that. I'm just curious how you would feel if both guys came back and acted the same way the next week. I just kind of put that to you. Now, the Pharisee, you probably wouldn't notice because he'd still let his weed picked up, right? But what if this guy goes out and he still drinks too much and stays out too late and, you know, cheats on his taxes and has a couple of guys whack? I'm just curious how you'd feel about him when he came back the next week. How would you feel about it? I'll just give you the answer I hope you'll have, which is the same way you felt about him this week, which is you'd still pity him and forgive him. Not that our lives should not improve. They should improve. And one of the great, great Pastor Gator got a great meeting with a pastor uh, this week from another denomination. I'm telling your story, man, because it's going to ruin it for you. The guy said to him, we're really good at life and no good at doctrine. And Gating said to him, we're really good at doctrine and no good at life. We should probably work together a little bit. You know? There's something, I mean, you got to remember this is pastor lunchtime conversation. I'm just letting you in on it. But you gotta, you got to kind of think about that. The answer would be you'd still be loving them. Um, we got to go. Last thing is, is um, <coughs> yeah, of course, Doug. If you work together, how do you know the good will, will prevail? Good question. First the doctrine, then the life. Right? Although sometimes we're drawn into the doctrine by way of the life. So you just so the, so the answer is first the doctrine. Ultimate, the desk answer is the book answer is first the doctrine, then the life. But that's why you have pastors because your life is a moving entity, and that's why you have Christian friends and they help you sort that out. Isn't that what about how about that? Um, I give you uh, last thing. Um, our publishing house, Concordia Publishing House, is writing Lutheranism for Dummies. Uh, I'm, I'm, there's a there's a there's a thing Catholic. Catholicism for Dummies has been a huge bestseller. I'm serious. There is. You know how there's for everything else. So they're going to call it, they can't steal the title, so they're going to call it Lutheranism 101. And, and I was asked to write the um, article on justification, which is kind of the center of Lutheran theology, he said. So, but I was to write it as for somebody who'd never heard about the faith before. So I give you my rough draft. It, it, with fear and trepidation, it goes. Well, it's not my rough draft. It's my finished draft, but now it goes to an editor who will consider it a rough draft, <laughs> fodder for whatever comes next. So um, you, might, you might have a look at that and see. Uh, it, it, I would take criticism. Uh, it's not too late to repent of previous things. So if you read it and you go, I, I just, mm, ah. That, you could, yes, if you said, I didn't get it, that would be the saddest thing you could say, but you should tell me why. Because it's supposed to be written for your basic postmodern 25-year-old who might be interested in spirituality but doesn't really understand why Lutherans would make any difference to anybody in the whole world. So you can have a read through that. I'll take your um, 
gentle. Now remember, everybody wants to be an editor, so be gentle. You might edit in the way of mercy, not in the way of justice. <laughs> so we'll see when that comes out. I was asked to do the long gospel one too, but I just don't have the time right now to uh, write it because that's written with fear and trepidation. Because that uh, to write, as Pastor Ganey found out when he wrote for Portals of Prayer, you know, you got a hundred great letters back saying this is the best thing I've ever read, but then there are always five people demanding a Bobby Flake throwdown. So uh, you just don't have the time sometimes to, part of the reason people don't write as much is you don't have the time to defend yourself in cyberspace. So you just sort of say, I, you know, one will be enough. All right, see you next week. Come back with the vote. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.